Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, hopefully you enjoy listening to this podcast. But if you were to listen to another marketing podcast, then maybe I'd recommend Nudge by Phil Agnew. Now, the reason for that is Phil is a master of behavioral science and in particular applying behavioral science techniques to marketing to help you deliver better results. And I thought it'd be a lot of fun to get Phil on this podcast to ask him what are the top five things he's learned about behavioral science that you can use in your marketing. And in return, I thought I'd have a think through all the episodes that I've done, all the experts that I've met and try and pull out the five most important things I've learned as well. This episode was a lot of fun and I know you're going to enjoy it. So, Phil, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, John. I um, should say welcome to each other's shows. Yes, correct. <laughs> Shouldn't I, correct. actually? Because I'll probably put this on my show as well. That'll be fun. Um, oh, we'll get a bit more listeners to it, which would be nice. But Why not? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that was a very nice welcome, but I feel the same about you. I love Great. your show. I'm thank really you, excited mate. to be on here. So yeah, thanks for it's good. Now, I've been looking forward to this a lot, actually. And yeah. uh, we're going to talk about the the big the biggest nudges that you've uh, that you've discovered as uh, of course your show and I'll try and bring the biggest marketing theories to the table as well so it'd be quite exciting but just to introduce you if anyone's not listened how did you get into podcasting and why yeah so I did uh, like most idiots I decided to study marketing at university one of the worst decisions that I've made <laughs> I spent fifty thousand pounds is what I spent on that degree and it was kind of hilarious because. I spent, I did that. I did that for four years, went into my first marketing job, was given the most basic tasks, write a blog, write an email subject line, found myself absolutely inept at that task <laughs> and was unable to do it at a successful pace. None you of know, the theory you'd studied was like, right. they didn't tell me how to do this. Turns out four Ps doesn't actually help you yeah. in any tactical marketing role. And I basically had this period of my marketing life, maybe two, three years where I just had no idea what I was doing. I felt quite frustrated because... In most other degrees, what you study are these laws and these principles that then you hold and you apply throughout your career. And the opposite felt true in marketing. I felt like I'd studied very vague strategy that I'd instantly forgotten and then had no application throughout my career. And eventually, after about three years, I discovered the world of behavioral science, psychology and consumer psychology and realized that these things I wanted, these principles, these laws that I could apply to my work did exist but in this totally different field of psychology. And since then, I've sort of spent every bit of moments, every moment I could in my marketing career learning about this field. And then in 2019, decided I want to learn even more. So I did the cliche thing of thinking, I'll just start a podcast on it so I can interview people about it. And so interview uh, experts in the behavioral science space, marketing pioneers who, who apply this stuff. And I've been doing that show for about four years, applying a lot of the stuff myself as well which has helped the show grow to one of the leading marketing podcasts in the UK. I mean, one of the leading is, is, is maybe an understatement, actually, because you, <laughs> you, you've exceeded one million downloads, I believe, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're on for a million this year, actually, which is quite exciting. A million in one year? Yeah. Wow. Um, I don't know if we'll get there if we include YouTube, but um, yeah, I don't know if we'll quite get there, but almost there. That's very impressive. Um, what's the highest ranking you've achieved in business as well? Because you, you, you sort of mix it with some pretty well-known figures, don't you? Yeah, I've been up in the top 10 quite a few times. It's an interesting metric because a lot of it is based on the acceleration of growth. So you can get above, you know, big names, Tim Ferriss, you know, a lot of the others in the space that are a lot bigger than me. But if you have this acceleration of growth, you can sort of shoot up there. So I've got, I've got in the top 10 before. 
And I was, I was saying to you before as well, very impressed with the way you, you shared that news as well, because you, you 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 did a scroll, video scroll, didn't you? Showing, you know, here's Stephen Bartlett. Oh, look, there I am, <laughs> just below. So you're keeping some very good company. Well, that is that is a pure nudge there. Yeah, that is a psychological hack, because there's this principle known as the halo effect, which you'll know, John, which is when you're in the sort of company of others, you can benefit from just being in that company. This actually comes from a study, which I didn't believe. It was a study done with um, luxury retailers, and they looked at if you set up a shop, a new luxury shop with an unknown brand, but you placed it next to other luxury retailers like Gucci and Chanel, that shop will do better when you're next to those stores simply from the halo effect. Simply being near other luxury stores will make your shop perform better. And this study, I think it was done in the labs. It wasn't in real world, but they predicted huge increases of revenue. And I just thought this has to be BS. Like, There's no nothing different about this store. Why should more people go to it just because it's next to a Gucci? So I thought I'd test it. And I ran this test on Google survey. It went out to about 100,000 people. And all of the people were asked, would you listen to this podcast? Both showed an image of my logo. Half, though, were shown just the image on its own of my logo, podcast logo. The other half saw my logo, but dimly in the background, there was the logos of very other popular shows. So Diary of a CEO, um, Off Menu, Desert Island Discs. And I wanted to see if just merely being in the presence of those others made my show more likely, people more likely to listen. And it 3X'd. The amount no, of really? so the, the control was about 6.4% said, yeah, I'll ch- try to show with the variant, which had the halo effect, 15.8%, I think, said they would listen. That's so weird. when you show, when you tell people that you're a top show, yeah. picture the other shows you're okay. around because that will make it even more impactful. That's amazing. That's amazing. And and look, you know, again, it's it's referencing a much bigger category in business as well, isn't it? So, you know, reaching more people, much broader audience as well than than I say just marketing. And obviously, you know, we're, we're here to do marketing podcasts, but it also means you probably draw in a bigger audience, don't you? Because yeah. more people see it than would have seen it before. Exactly. That's exactly it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations on that. That's um, very, very impressive and uh, long may it continue. Um, let's get into the top five nudges. So w- what we thought we'd do just for fun, uh, listeners and viewers, I've come up with five lessons I've learned since doing this podcast. Phil's come up with five of the most powerful nudges to to transform business. And we're going to do a bit of nudge marketing tennis between us and see how we get on. So, um, So give us your number five. Why did you pick it? And what is it? And what can we learn from it? The The first one I wanted to talk about is a very powerful one that I've used a lot in my shows. I think you probably use it as well. It's known as the labor illusion. And this is the idea that if we see the effort that has gone into creating something, we will value it more highly. And the most, I think, famous person who applied this was Steve Jobs. Whenever he started a keynote presentation at Apple, he would start by saying, we've been working on this feature for years. We've built something which will revolutionize the industry. There was one where I think he came back to Apple as a CEO and he said, if you'd been around the car parks of the Apple offices in the weekend, you would have seen they were full of people. Really making the point consistently across multiple keynotes to emphasize the work that went into something. He knew what he was doing because there's a lot of evidence that, back, that backs this up. So there's a study by someone called Morellas who essentially showed participants um, lists. These participants were people who were looking to buy a house and he showed them lists of these, these houses. Um, the lists were identical, but some people were told, oh, the real estate agent has spent all night preparing this list of houses for you. Do you think there's any house on here that suits your needs? Whereas the others were told, um, the real estate agent used a computer to generate this list in 30 minutes. Is there any that you think you'd need? Turns out, unsurprisingly, of course, but something that's important for us to know, 
the one that people thought took more effort was valued much higher. So people are far more likely to say, oh my God, I love this house in the list that the real estate agent spent a long time preparing. And so you can apply this to marketing, you can apply this to podcasts. One of the best ways I applied this was in a Reddit ad. And I did two ads, identical ads, links to my show. One said, learn the six best things I've heard from marketers this year. The other said, I've spent 480 minutes listening to marketing experts this year. Here's what I learned. Lo and behold, the one that suggested that I had spent 480 minutes, that was true, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that one performed far better. I think it was 2x the number of clicks. So this That's, labor illusion yeah, is, is, yeah. is really, really powerful. I love that. I love that a lot. Um, in fact, I've listened to Stephen Bartlett talk about how he made his podcast successful. Yeah. I don't know whether I entirely believe what he says, but, but the amount of work he claims goes into it. I mean, for example, he talks about the team have 120 KPIs. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, Really? Yeah. Now, I, I don't know whether it's an exaggeration or not, but I mean, it, it just signals the amount of effort and work and quality control that goes into making the show. And like you say, that just means, well, it must be good. Yeah. I mean, if, if that, you know, if they care that much about 120 things, surely it's good. And you should apply this in lots of ways. So you're applying this right now with this beautiful studio set up that's you. showcasing <laughs> to people. And it really yes. is to, to everyone watching or listening. This is very impressive. You put a lot of effort into this. People can see that they'll value it more. Yeah. And there's other ways you can do it. If you go on a brewery tour, studies have shown that if you go on a brewery tour at Guinness, you will value the beer that you're served at the end much higher because you've seen the effort that goes into it. Any company should be showcasing the work they're doing, showcasing the effort they put in, showcasing the money invested. All of that will make them value the product more. Very good. Well, I might use your beer analogy to pivot to my number five. That's right. Great, so yeah. here we go. Yeah. Here's, here's, a, here's a little pivot. So um, in a number five, that um, might be surprising, but uh, the power of getting fired. Yeah. So in fact, I was at an event last night and uh, I, was, I was talking about the background of the podcast and how I set it up. And the fact that actually, the only reason I set the podcast up actually, because I, I got fired from my job at BrewDog and I found myself freelancing. And um, one of the questions that people kept asking me, I was, I was working for a number of different agencies helping on business development. And they all asked me the same thing. They said, um, John, can you introduce me to your CMO mates? I'm like, well, funnily enough, I don't have a long list of CMO mates that I, you know, hang out on Friday afternoon with kind of thing. It's not how it works. I'm usually pretty busy, you know, doing the job sort of thing. And I thought, well, actually setting up a podcast would be a pretty cool thing to do because a bit like you in terms of what you're doing with behavioral science is it allows me to meet the right kind of people and uh, find out from them, learn from them and make some content they might kind of like. And it's a great networking tool. So anyway, so I was at this networking thing last night and said, um, you know, I told the story about how I got fired from BrewDog and how that's actually why I ended up being a kind of podcaster. And um, anyway, someone came up to me and I said, congratulations on getting fired. <laughs> oh, geez, thank you. <laughs> you know, but um, anyway, but, but reflecting more seriously on it, actually, and, and being fired or failing is something that people find hard to talk about. And, you know, it, it, it's funny, it's, it, it's a bit of an English thing as well, I think, you know, where we, oh, we couldn't possibly mention the things that have gone wrong. But actually, in my experience, you learn so much when things go wrong, don't you? And I, I think it's something that we can all benefit from because, you know, when things go wrong, that's when you learn and that's when you can improve. And any biography I've read of a really successful person, like half the book will be about all the startups that failed and how they went again and all this kind of thing. So so, so first thing I thought in terms of getting fired is see it as an opportunity to learn and see it as fuel. Because the other thing that happened to me as well, in fact, I got fired twice. So my, my claim <laughs> to fame is in one year, I got fired twice. You know, so I'm, I think you're inventing the fired twice club just to kind of, you know, hey, you, you haven't tried. If you haven't been fired more than once, you know, you're not yeah, trying right. hard enough sort of thing. But the second thing I learned about being fired was 
actually there's an in, there's a lot of people out there that are very generous with their time so when i when i suddenly found myself unemployed the amount of businesses that were keen to give me a job or consult or whatever was amazing but i did this thing where i i basically had a hundred day plan to meet a hundred people in a hundred days and i thought i i think i'd I started with about 30. And the idea was every time I met someone, I'd go, introduce me to someone that you think might be quite useful for what I'm trying to do. And what I discovered is the generosity of the network. When when you're out on your own and you're trying to, do, you know, you're trying to find a job, people will be so generous. But when you're in a corporate role, in all the muck and bullets of the job, you forget that in fact people are more likely to try and sort of, you know, criticize you or make you fail. But actually, out there in the real world, particularly with startups, I found with startups and scale ups and VCs, everyone wants you to succeed. And it was a, a really powerful thing. So that was my next learning. And then um, my next learning after being fired, something I felt very profoundly is it's more important who you work with than what you do. Because I think actually we like to talk about purpose and, you know, working for the right type of company, that kind of thing. But actually, it's the people that you are working with that determine your success, I think, more than what you exactly do. Do they inspire you? Do they have you back? You know, have you got the right kind of team? Are you all going in the same direction? And so I, I kind of reflected that actually I wish if I did my career again. I thought much more about the people I was working with and whether our values were aligned and whether we were kind of had the same vision than necessarily the the brand above the door, which can be quite easy to, yeah. you know, go for. I think that's, I've got a theory actually, John, about you. I've got a theory that the way, how open you are about that period of your life mm. directly correlates to your success now. And I think it's a really important thing. Actually, it's one of the things that I wanted to talk about anyway. So it's a nice link to one of my nudges. Because you being so open about the fact that you were fired from BrewDog, I think only benefits you, yeah. which is irrational because most people would think, I should not tell people I've been fired yeah. because they will associate me with being poor at my job. And why would they listen to my yeah. podcast if, it, if I'm poor at my job? But the opposite is true. There's something called the Prattful Effect, which I'm sure you'll know. I love that. In fact, that is that. If I had to pick a favourite, <laughs> <It's good, isn't laughs> yeah. I'm owning this, by the way, yeah, ladies yeah, and yeah. gentlemen. Well, rightly so, because it works. Yeah. So the Prattful Effect is this idea, for those of for those listening who don't know, that if you showcase your flaws, you you flaunt your flaws, you actually appear you appear to be more likable, not only more likable, potentially even more charismatic, more intelligent, all these amazing things. And that comes from revealing a weakness. There's a great study by Joe Sylvester from Cardiff University. And she um, she got people to apply to a bunch of different jobs, sending in CVs and then going through the interview rounds. But the research assistants who are applying for these jobs would do one of two things. Half of them would only share strengths during the interview process. They would make sure that their uh, education, their, their experience was identical to try and keep it as, as, as identical as possible. But some would only show strengths, like the opposite of what you're doing, but some would show the, their weaknesses as well. So like you're doing, being really frank and transparent. And she found, conversely, which we wouldn't expect, the people who showed their weaknesses were more likely to get the job. That shouldn't happen. Why should that shouldn't happen at all? Because you, by showing a weakness, you you are revealing a flaw. But it does work, and it makes you more like. I to think get it's job. believability. So the one yeah. thing I hate in interviews, I'm interviewing somebody, yeah. and I go, "Give me an example of a weakness," and they'll say something like, "I'm a perfectionist." Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean. And yeah. I just go, "Come on, like that's 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 like yeah, that's a strength, right?" So that's not really a weakness. 
but but it's it's also I, I i think the importance of it is that it's how well you know yourself and if you know yourself and you know your weaknesses you can compensate for them and the, the people that i found most difficult to work with are those that don't recognize the things they're not good at because none of us, you know, we're not perfect are we um it's interesting actually i, I probably told the story a bit too much already but um I was in Tel Aviv a few years ago, and I met the uh, founder of the biggest venture capital company in Tel Aviv, uh, in Israel, I think. And he was just amazing to listen to. But when he vetted potential people to invest in, he he says, and now I'm paraphrasing, not necessarily quite right, but the essence of what he said is, if you haven't failed, I won't invest in you. And the reason he said is he said that it's so important that I want people that can deal with failure because it's going to happen, Right. And anyone who's failed and picked themselves up and learned and rebuilt, that's the kind of character I want. If you've been lucky enough never to have any challenges, you're probably not going to be well equipped for when it does happen. I thought, man, but it's interesting. He did say he struggles when he goes to the UK because at a dinner party, he'll, you know, happily chat about, oh, yeah, this business went under and we, you know, we face this and people look at him a bit like, you did what? <laughs> Why would you say that? You know, so it's a, it's a cultural thing, but um, well, it also makes you memorable yeah. as well. That's the other thing. Hence the girl last night who said, oh yeah, congratulations on being fired. Yeah. So it, it, it creates a story that people can. Uh, it makes you memorable and it makes, it gives people a reason to engage with you. And I think it's one of the strengths of your podcast is that's people mem- remember you. And they think, oh, I'll have to listen to that. I would love to know the that story. That guy that got that. fired, yeah. yeah. I, I ran a, I mean, you're going to hear me say this way too often on this show, but I did run a test on the Pratful Effect, which I think showcased this. Again, Reddit ads. Reddit's really easy to test with and quite cheap, which is what I like. But I did two ads and they were so simple. One said, five reasons why you should listen to Nudge. And then some reasons. You know, I've interviewed Rory Sutherland. It's all these different things. It was a bunch of rubbish, really. And then the other said, five reasons why you shouldn't listen to Nudge just telling people not to listen. The five reasons were a bit tongue in cheek, like um, you'll get so much knowledge about marketing, you'll piss off your colleagues or something like that. But they were still, I was still actively telling people don't listen to this show. So trying to really focus on a flaw, a weakness. And you'll have guessed the answer. That version where I said people don't listen to the show was far more popular. Now, why is that? Why did more people click on that? It's because it 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 goes against your expectations. It's far more memorable. It's far more eye catching. It's different from what people usually hear because, like you say, in Britain, people hide uh, hide their flaws rather than flaunting them, and it captures attention and made that ad far more popular. So, this is a long winded way of saying embracing your flaws is a definite way to help your podcast definitely. grow. I think it, you've shown and, that. and linked to that, isn't there a, also? Um, is it the mean tweets idea that Richard <laughs> that also got that if you can do a negative review by somebody that your audience don't associate with, it it, yeah. it, it can all is almost a kind of reverse psychology. So, if you were a Guardian reader and the Daily Mail gave it a one star, yeah. actually you'd promote the one star review in the Guardian yeah. from what the Mail said. And if you go to the Mail, you'd go, oh, rated one star by the Guardian, sort of thing. And it's it's the kind of you know yeah. very another another kind of similar way of using that same kind of nudge. It's the classic snowbird ski resort ad, and they are, they are a very technical ski resort with some really steep slopes i don't ski but apparently that's that's what it's like <laughs> and they did a, a full page ad in a magazine which read one star too technical couldn't ski it <laughs> and they just put that out and that ad i think the impressions they must have got from that because the amount that's been shared online is unbelievable in the millions for probably a 500 hundred dollar ad spend and it's a, it's a great example that's really clever yeah, i re- really really, really like 
So, should we move on to your, your number four? Yeah, let's. Well, let's I did. It. I did Prattful. So, oh, Prattful is number four. I'm okay. giving that as well. So, I'm oh. happy for you to go. Are next. you bouncing back? Okay, yeah, cool. Back. All right. So, um, number four lesson, I think, for the last uh, three or four years, um, the power of purpose and backing yourself. If I look at where I get the most energy doing this podcast from, it's it's been talking to startup founders, and the thing that startup founders have is this such clear idea of what they want to do in the world. And it's just so inspiring, um, whether it's like Tony's Chocolate Only wanting to, you know, position themselves as slave-free chocolate. I'm like, that's fr- frigging genius. A, I didn't know slavery was involved in chocolate production, so I'm saying, you know. And then suddenly you reposition the entire category around, well, is your chocolate stay free? And in fact, I've been to trade shows where the Tony's reps are going around all the other chocolates going, oh, quick interview, are you slave free? You know, like, <laughs> as if they were kind of reporting for the news or something. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, what a way to disrupt to kind of a whole market. Um, or I had uh, Luke from Lucky Saint on recently, and um, he got very obsessed about creating the alcohol-free beer category because he, he'd travelled around Europe and discovered that in most markets, up to 10% of beer sales are non-alcoholic, and it's just perfectly normal and acceptable, and the quality of beer is the same, you know, whereas here, I think it was half a percent. And they were always like, this is might, might, might be some behavioural science in this, because um, they were the, like the 0% version of full alcohol beers and so you had this side-by-side comparison where you could go oh yeah it's peroni but without the alcohol so it looks a bit less whereas he wanted to create a dedicated brand that only did alcohol free firstly because well back to your effort point so much effort went into finding the perfect alcohol free and that's all you do so it becomes you know becomes a bit but there's no reference you can't have lucky saint full alcohol um but but what i loved about that as, as another example is just the the clarity of purpose that founders have, I really admire. And I, and I think as I reflected on the kind of three or four years doing this, that's what I want. I want I want to, you know, any brand that you manage or you as a person, how clear are you about the difference you want to make in the world? And probably my, one of my favorite guests actually has been Niels Leonard from Uncommon. And um, although he does, he does, he does, he does say that uh, his wife told him off because uh, like he was talking about purpose one day and he, and, and his wife said, firemen have purpose you sell cheese <laughs> you know which is a bit of a come down but but you know you look at what you know he and the team at uncommon have done amazingly is they've they've, they've left the wpp kind of super network of agencies create an independent agency and been phenomenally successful and they you know they're really passionate about wanting to work with brands that want to see a change in the world and it's really clear and you feel that and so anyway so i, I thought for me looking back i think the power of your purpose, I mean, not necessarily social purpose, and all have to save the planet, but the power of your own purpose and then backing yourself. Because I, I, I admire anyone who jumps from the kind of safety of a corporate role into, you know, into a startup and backs themselves. I think that's just incredibly inspiring. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think the interesting thing with purpose probably is because you've got two camps. You've got people that really do purpose. Like we, we were founded to solve this problem, right? And then you've got people that will make up some statistic like 75% of Gen Z care that their coffee is sourced from an ethical plantation or whatever. You know what I mean? And you look at it and you just go, well, of course you tick the box. I mean, like, who wouldn't want that? You know what I mean? It's, it's just sort of slightly fabricated, you know, as a communication message sort of thing. So, but, but I'm all in on the authentic purpose and what are you here to do? What difference do you want to make? And is it legitimately what you can do? You know, does it like Tony's Chocolate Only, you look at their annual report the annual report focuses on the change they're making in the supply chain, not the profit they're making. You know, it's really clear in terms of even as something as boring as the financial statement talks about that, you know, yeah. and you I think, know. right, okay, you've nailed it. I think that's a lot, a lot of that is down to skin in the game as well. 
So there's one thing in having a purpose and claiming that you care about slavery. Well, Patagonia is an example that I often think about, claiming that you care about the environment. But Patagonia put skin in the game where they actively turn down opportunities in order to showcase their care towards this purpose. So they will not sell Patagonia gilets and jumpers to companies that they think are disrupting the environment and ruining the environment. So if you work at a, a big mining company and you want to get your staff these beautiful Patagonia gilets with your brand on them, you will not be allowed to. They will not sell to you, which is kind of irrational because they're turning down money and that money could be used, reinvested by Patagonia to help the env- environment, but it showcases skin in the game. They clearly care about this purpose and they're making active choices to care about this purpose and that makes us believe them more. Well, it's, it, that's the reason to talk about being fired as well. It's the believability because you then go, I, I actually believe what they're saying because they're, they're, they're telling me something that costs them. Because everyone can say we're for the environment, but you know, purpose isn't purpose unless until it's cost you something. And so, what that speaks, and probably they get a million more fans off the back of making that, you know, taking that position than the thousand they might have lost through the the corporate deal. Yeah, brilliant, love it. Okay, bring us your. Uh, we're on number three, I think. Yeah, and we're going to go from one of probably your brilliant high level. No, really, no, this is good. This is good. Really strategic thing that companies friend, really care about, and I'm going to go to one of the most basic. <laughs> no, this is what I love about. This is what I love about you because it's evidence based and it's just really. <laughs> Like you can go and implement it tomorrow. Yeah. So I want to talk about the curiosity gap, which is essentially cliffhangers and the idea of how you pique someone's interest. Because I think it's, I mean, it is important at all levels of marketing, but especially at a tactical level. So this sort of was first discovered by a, a, a social psychologist called Zygonik. And she was, I think, down the pub with some mates or, or basically at a restaurant. And she was with fellow psychologists and they were ordering food from a waiter. And the waiter wasn't taking any notes on a notepad to write down the orders, but he still remembered the order absolutely perfectly. And they were shocked by how how, how good this waiter's memory was because he was going around to multiple tables doing the same thing. And being social psychologists, which they were, they thought, well, let's let's test a theory. Their theory was the brain is better at remembering things when the task isn't finished. So when the task still needs to be completed. So she test she basically was thinking wow this guy not only remembers all our orders but remembers to bring us the right plates and put the chicken at my uh, my table and the fish at yours whatever it is and that's incredible and so what she did is she let the waiter serve this meal and then they all got out their tablecloths and covered what they had ordered and then just as the waiter was walking away they said oh, hold on hold on can you just try and remember what our orders were again because he had just perfectly put them down in front of their table and as soon as he tried to remember once the order had been completed once they'd all been given their food he totally forgot he wasn't really? able to remember that i had the chicken so his, his and you had brain the was geared up just just until the the the, the job had been done That's and it. then the brain kind of then goes into relax mode Begins goes okay it. i don't need to be yeah. in that state so, of focus and that is a very very small application of a much wider thing that the brain does which is when information is unknown or incomplete we have a desire to fill that information. When it, when our curiosity has peaked, we have a desire to satisfy that curiosity. And this is this is the story of clickbait and cliffhangers. And you think, oh, clickbait is a new thing invented by BuzzFeed. It's not. It's been around for, 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 for millennia almost. Arabian Nights, that story, was written with cliffhangers and released in parts. Uh, all of Charles Dickens' work, at least when he was publishing in newspapers, would have cliffhangers at the end. The reason behind Shakespeare's success is arguably down to this curiosity gap. So 
Hamlet as a story was was known before Shakespeare. He didn't write that story. He, he he adapted it. And the difference he made was usually at the start of these stories, the information about the character was given up front. So they would say Hamlet is a madman and this is his story. Whereas Shakespeare hid that. He hid that information and he sparked curiosity. You didn't know whether Hamlet was insane or not, whether he'd lost his mind or not. And that made me people more likely to watch it. So this is not a new thing, and it's something that I think is a bit of an ancient storytelling technique, but we're very quick to discredit it these days. We sort of throw it under that category of, well, that's just a, that's just a ta- nasty tactic BuzzFeed uses. It's not. It's a really important psychological bias. Yeah. And as I will mention constantly throughout this interview, it's something I have tested, and I thought, I wanna, I've want to. i never done TikTok before. I still don't really do it. I don't really understand it. But I thought, I'm, I want to test this ancient storytelling technique on TikTok. I want to see if it works. So I created 20 videos for TikTok. Half of them had a Curiosity Gap-inspired intro. So they would say something like, I've just discovered the best persuasion tactic I've ever found, and I'll share it in a bit or something like that. Probably a little bit better than that. And then the other half would just get right into it and say, this is the best persuasion tactic in the world or something. Compared them both, put them both up, looked at the amount of followers they drove, the amount of clicks, the amount of viewers. And the difference was genuinely 10x. The ones that had the Curiosity Gap-inspired opening got far more views, far more comments, far more likes, led to eventually getting around 11,000 followers on TikTok, whereas the ones that didn't were, were largely unknown, didn't get the same engagement whatsoever. And it just shows that this tactic, which is as old as time, it's been used by everyone from Charles Dickens to Shakespeare, still works and still is arguably the most important thing you can use if you're trying to gain attention in your marketing, still works today on the most modern platforms on the planet. It probably explains Stephen Bartlett's title as well. Because like that, yeah. he plays that curiosity gap a lot, doesn't he? In terms of like, I mean, he's got very clickbaity recently, hasn't he? In terms of his content, but and apparently he also um, AB tests all his titles as well, you know, and puts them out there to see what the response they get. But thank you because you've explained why. And I never knew why at restaurants like someone come around. And I, I feel like I need to like, uh, excuse me, are you writing this down? Because have you got my kind of you know specific requirements here? You know, amazing that. Absolutely. And you'll notice it as work as well. As soon as you finish a project at work, you completely forget it. As soon as you've oh, done an exam yeah. at school, you can I remember that. My, I, I did um, economics and finance degree. And I could, and I went, in my first job, uh, someone actually, I don't know why, asked me about the capital asset pricing model, which is well known in econometrics or whatever. And I was like, I, I couldn't tell you. And, and that was the core part of one of my modules that I could have literally like written a thesis on at the time. And like, Nope, brain has scrubbed that one. <laughs> yeah. So that's not your next tip then, is it? No, it's not my next <laughs> tip. Exactly, exactly. Um, although this does, my next tip does link to memory. And I, th- I was thinking, actually, I, I've reflected a lot on this, that if I were to start a brand today, um, or the podcast being a bit of a brand itself, the power of distinctiveness as well. So, I mean, it, m- most marketing students will have read Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow and Distinctive Brand Assets and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and, and the importance they put on being distinctive, standing out, you know, in, in the crowd. And then my colleague Orlando Woods written a lot of things. He calls them fluent devices. I mean, his focus on advertising and what he means by fluent devices, uh, a repeatable character like Kevin the Carrot in Audi or um, a repeatable scenario. Should have gone spec savers or you're not you when you're hungry, that sort of thing. But something that is unique to you that stands out as you know and, and creates a relationship with the audience. And if I were to imbre- invent a brand today, I would obsess about those things because what we've seen in the research on our system one is over the last 10, 15 years, the use of those things has been in rapid decline, actually. And, and we've lost 
the ability to stand out, be distinctive and create consistent um, characters over time. Meerkats is a great example, actually. I mean, you think, why on earth would you have a Russian sounding meerkat? But but what you do in a very clever way is you entertain the audience because it's surprising. So you go, oh, why is there a Russian meerkat? The, the joke on the compare the market, compare the meerkat. I mean, the first ad they did is, I think it's still the best, where you've got, you know, Alexander going, you know, basically saying, oh, you know, we, we failed to drive any traffic to compare the meerkat. They've all gone to compare the market. This is really annoying. What are going to do about it? You know, I want to compare the meerkats. Anyway, but it's just like an inversion of the joke, but it's really, really cleverly done. But it sticks in your memory, doesn't it? Because it's distinctive. You know, and we, we argue about difference versus distinctiveness, but being distinctive, I think, is so important. In fact, I'm going to piggyback off that, and that's going to be one of mine as well, because I think distinctiveness is so well proven in the world of behavioural science in terms of the effect it has. This goes right back to um, von, von Resteroff's studies in the 1930s. Um, she ran tests where she showed people lists of letters that they needed to remember, different combinations of letters like Z, uh, W, X, D, Another set of letters, another set of letters, another set of letters. She needed to see how many they would remember. But within that list, she would put a combination of four numbers. One, seven, two, three, whatever it might be. And then at the end, she would say, write down as many of these combinations as you would remember. The numbers, because they were the, the distinct thing within the list, were 30 times more likely to be remembered than the letters. She would switch it to prove that it wasn't just that numbers were more memorable, where numbers would be the common thing to remember, and then there would be a set of letters. And then the letters were more 30 times more memorable. And it's this finding, basically, that being distinct, it boosts recall, boosts memorability. And Richard Shotton, he updated this in 2018, did it with brands. And I think this is a really interesting application that people need to remember. Because he did a study where he showed people 10 brands from the same category. So 10 automotive brands, Ford, Chrysler, whatever else it is. And then showed them one brand from a different category, say fast food. So showed them Burger King. Did the same test as Von Resteroff, got them to look at it, spent some time doing something else. Oh, which which brands do you remember? The distinct brand within that group, the fast food brand, was four times more likely to be remembered. So being distinct within your environment is, is more memorable. And this brings us back to the meerkat. Because what was really impressive about Compare the Meerkat was not just that they were doing something different. It's that they were doing something which was totally distinct within their industry. Confused.com, um, what's the other one? Money Supermarket. All of them were doing the same very very utilitarian ads where they were saying, we're cheaper, we're faster, we've got better customer service. And compare the Meerkat said, no, we're going to do something completely different. And what's hilarious, and this is really where us marketers need to hang our heads in shame, is what the competitors then did. Because every single competitor in that, in that set copied compare the meerkat and started to do these really weird radical ads they had opera singing people talking about car insurance or men dressed in high heels dancing because they got such a good deal and they haven't learned anything from compare the meerkat or richard Stoughton or von restaurant because the learning there is be distinct within your space do something that the others aren't doing because that'll make that'll boost your recall but by copying compare the meerkat they're actually lessening their recall totally. they're getting less so oh, it's totally. a really important it's point. Really, really, it. no, it's really, really important point. I've presented alongside Richard a few times, actually, and, and I do love and use this as well. I love that we, we were talking about the, an environmental study we were both taking part in the other day at the Festival of Marketing. And uh, there's a really difficult question from the audience, which I sort of slightly blag my way through. And then Richard goes, well, it, it connects nicely to Van Restroff effect in the 1952, where, you know, this study proved that... I, I just like, dude, man, that is, that is just like Jedi master tricks, <laughs> mate. Like, how can anyone argue with you when you've quoted someone who sounds clever, he's dead, you know, 
I'm like, <laughs> I just prosecuted think, by the Nazis. I, know, I, mean, I, I just, like, I mean, like, you know, you just like owned the answer there, mate. It made me look really thick. But I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, it's quite. It's, it's, it's part of the reason I love, you know, behavioral science is you, you've got these fascinating experiments, you know, done, in, you know, done over over you know time, which kind of tell you. Now it's really fascinating. So, what would be your next uh, next one on your list? I'll do my one next, which is is a, is a classic, but I think it's really important for for marketers to remember, and it's social proof. So social proof, as almost everybody listening will know, is the idea that we follow the actions of others. So this is an evolutionary trait. If you're a caveman and you see people running away from a cave, you don't go in that cave because there's probably something in there you don't want to go into. So uh, we've evolved to have this trait and it affects all of us when we go on holiday now and you're walking along the lovely boulevard and you see a queue outside a restaurant, you get in the queue for that restaurant because you think, oh, this must be good. You follow the actions of others. And there's lots of wonderful ways this is applied. The most basic is if you go to a restaurant and you see a menu and there's a most popular dish on that menu, the orders for that dish will go up, even if it's more expensive. Um, There's wonderful ways it can be applied by brands. So uh, McDonald's famously said one billion uh, Big Macs served. That definitely helped them by showcasing social proof. Um, You've got other examples as well of (laughs) an example of a company that should do this, but they don't. Carling in the UK. Carling, I think, are the most popular beer brand in the UK, largely hated by most people there. So I have no idea how they should be leaning into that and saying, you know, maybe, Brit- maybe a bit favorite of well. or, yeah. yeah, yeah, you might not like us, but yeah. we're the most popular. That would be a really good slogan. <laughs> there we go. To Carling, if you're listening. That's free, by the way, that. to Carling, if you're listening. It <laughs> feels available for a, a small fee. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. I've tested this as well on, on, on ads, um, two identical ads with either an image of my logo or an image of my logo with some five-star reviews around it, you won't be surprised to hear that the one with the five-star review performs much better. And this is this is a this is an age-old idea that if you showcase that lots of people are doing an, a behavior, people will be likely to follow that behavior. So it's a really smart thing that any marketer can think of, and I think you can almost base your whole strategy around it. Your whole strategy as a company could be: How can I make this company look like lots of other people are doing this thing? And 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 you know, like Fire Festival, if you remember that festival, which went awfully wrong. That's a bit of an example of, of how social proof can be so powerful. They really made it look like this would be the most popular festival in the world. Lots of scarcity, lots of influencers, so many social posts from very high, high net worth individuals saying this will be fantastic. And you can convince people that the world's worst festival is incredibly popular and, and should be something you visit simple, simply by the social proof. So it's oh, a nudge it. that I really love. Uh, that's, that's really good. I mean, you're right, Sergio. I, I, I did, I think, I did a post on the podcast with like a lot of five-star reviews. And then I chucked in a one star just for fun, yeah. you know, because <laughs> occasionally you get like somebody that decides to send you a one star. Yeah. And um, it was it was something like someone has said, like grizzled old ad land guy or something. <laughs> he called me. I just thought it was really funny. Anyway, so I tucked that in at the bottom. But, but you know, you're right. Like, um, yeah, I feel really awkward about that. I'm like, oh, I'm just like showing off now. Right. But actually people really like that. People respond to the, you know, the confidence or the, what other people say about you is, uh, yeah, it's quite good. Yeah. It's a much wider field of psychology called mimetic desire, which is a, a, a theory that all of our life's decisions are based on the desires of other people. And those desires are based on other people and those desires are based on other people. And we are all following models. So I come to this lovely studio and I see your lovely microphone. Suddenly I want this microphone. My desire to get this is purely fueled by looking at some, what somebody else has. And I think that tells, if you 
he, the author of this book, Luke Burgess, wrote this book called Wanting, all about mimetic desire. He, t- he asks you to review all of the decisions you've made in your life, all of the purchases you've made. And if you really critically look at them, you can probably see a influencer, a friend, a rival who has taken that decision or made that decision and it's influenced you to take it. You would be shocked That's, by how much of the decisions you think I you've made on your own that, are based on other people. Because it's also, you wouldn't want to admit it, would you? Yeah. So you're probably, you're probably yeah. conning yourself, you know, why did you buy those trainers, you know, yeah. actually? Versus, versus the story that, yeah. you tell, but yeah, oh, as you know, they, they're good quality, you know, really? Yeah. <laughs> he would say the the wife you pick, the husband you pick is also down to that. It's, really? Yeah, oh, it's, even at that level? Even wow. at that level. Even at that level. The, the child's name you pick. That'll be down to the names What's that you that think are socially about acceptable and, and what other people would think of them and maybe what well, Whether I was doing down. reverse psychology, I, I try to pick ones outside the top 100. But maybe that's yeah. social proof in itself. Is yeah. like, it's dis- Well, distinctiveness. I was going for distinctive rather yeah. than social proof. Or maybe there's a rival you have in your yeah. life, someone you don't like, yeah. who gave their child a really common name. It's something <laughs> different from them. The thing, thing I found weird with child, off on tangent, aren't we? But, but with child naming is that names, I have such strong associations with the name and someone I know with that name. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. if you think of a name, you just yeah. think of the person that you know with that name. Yeah. And that kind of changes how you think about that name, yeah. which is probably something as well. So, so maybe you could reverse it and go, you know, what, what was the person behind the name that gives you the association that you think that name's, you know, so yeah. good? That's why I called my podcast Nudge. Because yeah. there's a very famous book on the exact topic with the same you did. title. You did. And it's, I think, really helped. People don't get confused that it's the same thing. There's a different visual identity and it's not the same medium. But they instantly get what it's about and they have a lot of positive associations yeah. Yeah. With, with the podcast. I, I think that was genius by you, actually, because it, it it so clearly owns the category as well. Like, I mean, the nudge unit as well. You know, famous, that's famous you know, application of behavioral science to solve a big challenge about an election. So I, I just think that word is really associated. And it's also a very apt description of what you talk about on your show as well. Yeah. So you, you know exactly what you're getting. Yeah, that's yeah, no, good. No, it's really, really impressive. Well, let's hear your next tip. Right. My next one, again, on the list of not surprising things, I might say, um, but have learned again and again and again. Uh, so my number two was the power of creativity. But the insight here is we know it, but we don't apply it. And that's why I think it's quite interesting. I mean, I've had lots of people on the show talking about creativity. I mean, Sir John Hegarty from BBH, obviously, you know, uh, he's even got a course on it now, The Business of Creativity, teaching others how to be creative, talking to some of the you know most creative people in the world. Um, you know, and it, I also did an exercise where I looked at um, my, I tried to write down the five most successful moments in my career. And why? And creativity was at the absolute heart of all of them. And what I realized is it was like think, thinking of a different way to solve a business problem. And interestingly, they weren't all, in fact, very few of them involved advertising because we think of creative, creative as advertising, but actually creativity in its broader sense in terms of solving a problem in a different way is, I think, the most important thing to apply to business challenges. And you know, it's so competitive that to give you advantage, I think creativity is important. If you look at culture, I mean, I had Megan Farron from KFC. And they, 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 do you remember the, um, oh, this there might be some behavioral thinking in this. Do you remember when they um, ran out of chicken? Yeah. 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 And they did yeah. the FCK Genius. response. Genius. Absolutely bloody awesome, wasn't yeah. it? You know, 
There must be so many, yeah, there must be some behavioral science <clears throat> things going on there in terms of changing the words around and being authentic, a bit like the, the being fired thing. Was, or pratfall. Maybe, maybe it's the ultimate pratfall as well. I just spoke to a, a researcher called Sarah Moore, and she's done a bunch of studies on reviews, online reviews that feature profanity. So she researched, she looked at 300,000 reviews across Amazon and Yelp. Amazon don't allow profanity, it censors it, but Yelp do. And she found that any review that includes profanity is considered more believable, more likable, gets more upvotes, helpful votes, all these things. So why is that? Why is that? Well, if you use profanity, you're doing two things. One, you're, you're showcasing your emotion. You're being quite obviously strong. So you, you're clearly showing that you care about this issue. But more importantly, it's a bit of skin in the game like we spoke about earlier. Because profanity is a taboo word, you're taking a social risk, which means you must be really invested in this point of view. So KFC are kind of genius because by saying FCK, they're taking a taboo risk. They're potentially, you know, harming their brand. They're also showcasing a flaw as well. But all of that makes them more believable, makes them more likable. And it's actually something I'd, I'd love to know if you spoke to Megan about this, but they, they use this all the time. They had a campaign back in 2019 called Cluck the Fuck 199. Cluck the Fuck. <laughs> Repeat that. Edit that out. Um, what the Cluck? Oh, one ninety nine yeah, yeah, for your yeah. lunch, and and that got actually banned, but yeah. probably actually got a lot more. Well, after the, the tango tactic, that is tango that's what tactic. tango used to do back in the exactly. day: get banned and get talked about. And have you seen KFC's latest ad all across the underground about no. their chips? No, no, no. Gone. It says finally effing good, and you read it and you think, oh my god, they can't. They're just admitting much. that everything that went before was terrible. Well, that too, but wow. also like, is, is that not swear? But underneath yeah. the chips, with the chips are over yeah. this effing, so it sort of looks like it's covered. It actually says finger licking. If you sort of oh, really squint yes. and look beneath, so then get yeah. away with it. Yeah, but it's very smart because all this profanity—it's distinct, grabs attention. It's a social risk. Yeah. Makes makes you more believable. Actually, makes you more trusting, and it can be a really smart thing you can add yeah. to marketing. So yeah. I can see how that oh, I really love helps. that one. That's really good. Oh, that's that's brilliant. It does explain why Mark Ritson is so successful. Yeah. Yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, big time. Yeah, and I'm surprised you don't lean into it more, seeing as you are the uncensored. I know, CMA. I know. Well, I did. I did get a review on me once and just said, like, you know, come, where's the swearing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So that brings us to number one, yeah. doesn't it? Well, uh, what have you got? Well, I've got a kind of this. We're we're recording this in November. The New Year's coming up, and it's just quite a simple tip, but has a lot of psychological basis. So there's a researcher called Katie Milkman. She's written a fantastic book called How to Change. It's all about changing people's habits. What are we as marketers trying to do? We're trying to change people's habits. We're desperate to get people to, to buy different laundry detergent, whatever it might be. And her findings show that there is a lot of value in, of course, the content that you create, the message you put out. But there is almost just as much value in when you ask people to make the change. And it's something that we never really think about as marketers. We always ask them to do something immediately. We say, go to this movie now, buy this laundry detergent now, drink this beer now. And her finding is that, no, if you ask them to do something on a future date, which is significant, they'll be more likely to make that change. So she did, honestly, dozens of studies on students where she would try and get them to, say, go to the gym or start saving or start studying. And in each of these studies, she would give them two types of dates in the future. She would say, can you do this on Monday next week? Or can you do this on Tuesday, the 17th of March? For, for one group, their normal dates, let's call them. And then for the other group, she would use what she calls a fresh start date. Now, these fresh start dates have labels which attach to them, which give these dates meaning and significance, but they are, at the end of the day, dates. So a fresh start date would be the start of the new term 
or in the new year, or even this Halloween, these dates which have significance in our mind. And she would compare how likely people were to go to the gym or start saving or, or start studying. And when she asked people to do it on a fresh start date, they were far more likely to agree. I decided to test this, of, of course. course. <laughs> so I went on Google surveys, ran a test. I said, would you listen to my podcast? Here's what it's all about. And then the question was, would you listen to this podcast next Monday? Whereas the other one was, would you listen to this podcast in the new week? So fresh start date. People were two times more likely to say, I would listen on the fresh start date. It's a very simple tactic, but can have some quite big impacts for your marketing. So if you're producing a movie and you've got a movie trailer coming out, don't say it's out on the 17th of March. Say it's out in fall or something like that, and then say you can watch it from the 17th. If you're doing a, a big campaign in the new year to get people to use your product, encourage them to start, set a new year's resolution around that, around that product. Or if you're just trying to get people to listen to this podcast, yes, John, thank you. <laughs> tell them, give them a teaser and say it airs next week, listen on your Monday morning commute or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that would yeah, be more, yeah. be a better way of convincing someone yeah. to listen than I just simply just saying listen now. That's really good. Uh, really, really good. Um, Link's actually one of, one of my favourite um, uh, behavioural science stories. I think I was reading a Malcolm Gladwell book. I wish I'd kind of remembered quite where I heard this. And I, I may not get it exactly right, but... It was, it was, I think there was an outbreak of some disease on a, ca on a, on a campus in a university somewhere. And they decided, the lecturers got together and decided that basically they had to communicate that the students needed to get vaccinated for this uh, particular thing. And so um, on the first day, they basically did this announcement saying, we've had an outbreak of this thing and please can you all go and get vaccinated, right? And they, literally no one turned up at the at the doctor and you know doctor's surgery or whatever no nothing and they thought well maybe the message wasn't strong enough so the next time they went up and they put um a really graphic image of what would happen if you didn't get vaccinated and they thought that's going to sort it right anyway went down doctor no one turned up thought, oh geez anyway and someone came up with the idea does anyone know where the doctor's surgery is so on the <laughs> third day they just put up a map Go. This is where the doctor is, and they all went, and that was it. Yeah, I just yeah. we I can just... overthink problems, can't we? <laughs> yes. As marketers, we get into the weeds. I know. It's often simpler than we think. Exactly. I love that one. That's, that's really... Okay, number one. Now, th 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 this may be an anticlimax, and it's perhaps a slightly boring, but boy, is it true? And have I learned it over the last three or four years? The power of consistency or persistence, maybe, or just sticking to it. And, and it's really interesting. So it, it just take the podcast, for example, is, you know, the cumulative effect of doing the same things again and again and again and consistently. So when, you know, going to a weekly schedule, adding YouTube, you know, all those things that we've done on the podcast, actually that consistency has, has just built it and built it over time. And I just think with so many, certainly for me, having been fired twice and, you know, all the rest of it, um, you tend to move on from a job at just the point that maybe it's starting to work. And uh, I don't know, the average tenure of a CMO is probably about, you know, two years or something. It takes a while to get to know the job, work out what you can do, learn from failure, all the rest of it. And it seems to be we tend to move on just the point it's working. And it turns out it's the same for advertising. So we did this experiment, actually, um, at System One, working with one of the biggest advertisers in the world, can't say who, all confidential, exactly. But we took 50 of their ads that we had tested over the last five years, right? And it, it spanned different brands, different times of year, different media spends, different copy lengths. We looked at every variable, right? When in the year, the whole thing, right? We retested those ads, right? All 50. And we found that with the exception, I think, of two or three, the score in terms of how the public reacted to the creative, went up. 
So ads that had been playing out, like with millions of pounds to spend over time, it turns out that rather than wearing out, they'd worn in. And, and that contradicts almost an entire industry of we must make the new ad for next season. We must kind of, you know, we must change the creative because it's been running for six months, you know, and it's, it's, it's striking actually because we're, we're chatting in the middle of Christmas ads, you know, frenzy at the moment. And actually the top three ads that we've tested this year, Coke Holidays Are Coming, 25 years old, Aldi Kevin the Carrot, been going for six years. And actually M&S have done a great job. M&S have, um, they've brought back Dawn French as the fairy. So it turns out that actually familiarity breeds contentment, not contempt. And it's one of those, it's very boring insights, but actually you're better off becoming familiar than you are necessarily becoming radically, you know, doing something radically new. Yeah. And it's very important because it's something, you know, as marketers, we want to change strategy every quarter and it's the worst thing we can do. And there's the psychology behind that. It does have a name, of course, is known as the mere exposure effect. It's that I idea. knew you'd have something for no, me Of course here. I, 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 like, I, I Of course yeah, I will. You're not going to let me study, down. Like, come it's on. Yeah. Study. <laughs> so that's Zyg. No, not Zyg. No, I'm going to forget his name. Robert Zionks, I think, is the research behind this. He showed American students in an American university Chinese Mandarin characters. And American students got no idea what those characters mean. But he did something really smart with his test. He showed some of the characters more often than others. And this was over the course of a, of a few, I think, uh, hour or so, this test. Turns out, he asked them at the end, which characters do you like the look of the most? Didn't know the meaning. The ones they saw more often, they liked more. That's like very basic. You see something more often, you like it. There's a much more interesting version of this study, which I'm probably going to butcher. But it was about impressionist art. So this is in Hitmakers, a book by Derek Thompson. And... There's this idea that Cezanne's art was hated during his lifetime and, and really only became popular because one art dealer really loved it and then put in his will that he wanted it to be in an art gallery. And, and then it became popular through familiarity. And a researcher got obsessed with this. He was like, I want to be able to prove that Cezanne's art is not popular because people love it, but because it's familiar. So he, in his full lecture for a full year, he did an art history lecture, but he, he ran this experiment where instead of showing the students the most popular art, and I, he did that by, you know, what's in the National Gallery sort of thing, the art that is, is widely loved, he instead showed students very unknown art. Like eight out of the 10 pieces of art they would see would be very unknown. Two out of 10 would be the Cezanne to this world, the very famous. But because they were students, they didn't know. And then at the end of the six months or something, he then asks them, which which paintings do you like the most? Of course, they say the unknown stuff because that's the stuff they've been not, shown over and over again. They've not been exposed to it prior. Exactly. Oh. And these are people who have studied the tenets of what makes great art. Yeah. But they would still pick the unknown stuff. So even at that point, even at something as subjective as appreciating art often comes down to what you're used to. And if that works well, for Cezanne, it bloody hell, it should work it for would. Aldi and Eminem as well. It right? should, it should. Actually, it, it, it ties to a little interesting point um, as well. So, so Tom Goodwin, popular guest on the show, has launched his own podcast. Yeah. And um, he put a tweet out the other day going, can how interesting a guest is compensate for their lack of fame or lack of recognition? And it got me thinking, actually, that's a really, really interesting question. But if I were to kind of look, look you know, at the data and what is, you know, the most popular episodes versus the least popular episodes, the reach of this podcast would be number one, right? So uh, a bad episode today would absolutely trounce the best episode a year ago, right? So so the reach of the, the podcast or familiarity with the podcast itself would be number one. Number two would be whether or not the guest shares the 
the episode. So the extent to which they engage in in the topic and and, and amplify it through their thing would be number two. The the fame of the guests would be number three. And I'd actually put how interesting the content is at number four, which I really hate, right? Because I'm like, I want that to be number one. I'm like, please, 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 can the you know, can the unknown artist with the really interesting kind of thing beat the Suzanne? I have to go, the data tells me Suzanne. So the data would suggest that the profile of the guest, whether they share it, their reach, your reach as a media channel is actually most important. But that's not to say, of course, neither of us would be here unless our content was interesting. So maybe the interesting, you know, maybe the guest has to be interesting as a hygiene factor yeah. is my get out of jail on the on what yeah. I think the data is telling me. But yeah, no, I think it's it's familiarity of the guest. I think is, I agree uh, with all of that. Hugely important. But I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you on one point. Please so maybe do. I'd love that. Yeah, on. come on. Yeah, let's yeah, not agree let's on it. everything. Yes. Yeah. What's the That'd point? Be a shame. So we're gonna now have our argument yeah, yeah. to end the show, and Good. we can you can end on a high. Now. Well, this is a this is a behavioural science thing, right? Peak end rule. Peak end rule. Exactly. Let's, and, let's go. The peak is an argument where I say consistency is great because you learn the trade and it, you put in the reps and you get better as a podcast yeah. more you do. So let's talk about this solely yeah. from a podcasting point of view, yes. us two are podcasters, yes. and there might be people listening who think... Yes, yeah, so we've now narrowed like the audience down to five. Yeah, this so is the, fine. The five still listening. Yeah. Or, or, you know, they want to create a blog or a newsletter or <laughs> yes. or even start a project at work and get, get get a team going, whatever it might be. There is this rhetoric that consistency is all you need. If you do something 10 times, oh, you're bigger than... 10% of the podcasts in the world, because most podcasts don't even publish 10 episodes. This really pisses me off. It really pisses me off because it gives this framework of all you have to focus on is doing the thing and doing the thing is enough. And it's actually, I think, quite self-obsessed. And what you should be desperately caring about and thinking about is your listeners. And what do they, what, what value will they get and what, what will they get out of it? And I think, I, my whole thing is, consistency does not trump effort, energy, actual quality of work. Yeah. And if I was talking to somebody who was starting a podcast tomorrow, I would say to them, yeah, sure, I'd record 10 episodes, but ditch the six that are crap and just put four out, which are really good. Because I think there is something in, in a world where everybody's now trying to be consistent, you can be distinct and trying to be fantastic. So here's a, here's, a, here's a theory then. Are podcasts consistent because they're good and the podcasts are inconsistent because they're bad? In other words, if you have a bad podcast, doesn't do very well, you're likely to stop. Yeah. So maybe the true. correlation is that is it maybe that's what it is. Is that great podcasts are successful, therefore consistent. That's probably true. That might that might explain it. Because I because I I can't disagree with you actually. I mean, but there's something about sticking to something because if you stick to it long enough, you I mean, we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? If it, you know, you if you do something consistently enough, it has to be a high standard, but then you get some some podcasts go viral or whatever. I mean, that's mm. a bit of a silly word. You know what I mean? But but some some bring in a new audience and then you keep going and then another one will bring in a new audience. You don't always know what those are. Yeah. And and it's, you, you know, you put, I probably put the same effort and put the same preparation to every episode, but they they perform differently. Of course. And you yeah, kind of don't of know that until you keep going. Yeah. And if you're given up at episode three or five or whatever, you'd never have got to that tipping point. Of course. And you need to learn the craft and that's how you're going to get there. Yeah. But I think if you look at, I think the YouTube, and this is now we're inside podcasts here and it's way too meta and everyone <laughs> stopped listening. But I do think that YouTube is a great like test that people can look at and view because what you see with podcasts is you get consistent listeners because people subscribe and they will listen to every episode. You, consistency pays off because you, they're there anyway. On YouTube, the way you get, viewers is not through subscribers anymore it's all through the algorithm so you have to create fantastic content in order to be seen and what does that mean consistency's gone out the window 
Nobody would say on YouTube, all you have to do is do 10 videos, that's enough. It's not. They would say, spend all your time creating one thing that is incredible and that will get the views that you need. That will propel you to virality. And then, you know what, if you want to take three months to do the next thing, do. You can say the same about artists. You can say, you know, the best artists in the world don't release a painting or a song or a poem every week. They do something which they think is incredible. And I would push people within marketing and art yeah. space to do that yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Focus on the quality. Yeah, can't disagree. I, I think we've landed in a good place, actually. We haven't really disagreed, have no, we? No, I know. I was, I, I, yeah. I do wonder sometimes on this, right, whether I should relaunch an, like one of my favourite episodes from the first season. I'm going, man, that was quality. So I had um, Adam, was it Adam Morgan? Adam, I love Adam Morgan. He wrote, he wrote Eat the Big Fish about Challenger Brands. Mm-hmm. And he was episode number two. And... Uh, uh, I had him back on a few, recently and I, and I said, like, in one day, the downloads that we did on the episode today was more than the downloads over the last three years that our, our episode number two did. Because because the way podcasting works is that people, as your audience grows, they'll listen to your recent stuff. Very few people go back to the back catalogue. I mean, you get some and you know, it's lovely when you get you know, a message from someone. I've listened to all 106 of your episodes. <laughs> really? This is quite <laughs> impressive. I mean, like, my word, you need you need a... A mug, you know, we'll, get, we'll send you a 100 mug, you know, I've done it, you know. But it was interesting that the reach of the podcast was so much bigger when we, you know, when I had Amron again three years later, that that trumped. It didn't matter how interesting the second episode was. And it was really interesting. Oh, John, you know? I really want you so, to do this though. And I want you to run a test and tell me how it we goes. Got to do, okay, let's test so this. Here's the test right, I want on, you to run. I want you to republish that podcast. Yeah. I want you to record an intro and say, I've done, how many episodes have you done? 106. 106. Yeah. I've done 106 episodes. I'm go- I want to be brutally honest. Sorry, every other guest. Sorry, Phil. This one is my favourite. Yeah. And because then what you're doing is you're, oh my God, that's distinct. Labour yeah. illusion. He's yeah. gone back through this. I yeah. maybe say, I, I recently listened to my whole catalogue. Yeah. This was the best. Oh, got to put the work in, haven't I? I, I, I sat in. down for 1,000 hours yeah. over yeah. the weekend yeah. and re-listened to everything. 1,000 hours over the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Definitely, de- definitely Okay, I get, say get that. the accuracy right. <laughs> and then say, and then call that episode, we've done 106 or yeah. 107. Yeah. We, th- I think this is the best. Yeah. And I would almost be certain yeah. that would be your most downloaded episode. Okay. Because I think Done. it will stand out. I think it will be distinct. I think it will benefit from labor illusion. Covers a lot of the points we've covered today. In and one post, brilliant. I love I this. I'd love this to see it. how that well, like, what, what, We've got our peak end. Yeah. Thank you. Or, or call you this episode that as well. You can do that. You can say this is your favourite as well, if, if, if you prefer. Ooh, let's, ooh, ooh, Actually, don't, no, don't Tips do from the, yeah. I, 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 that was me. There's, some, pre- there's some pressure on us now, isn't there? <laughs> like, we've just done the, these are our top tips from three, four years, meeting the expert, like the world's best marketing experts. We're going to apply it to the launch of this episode. <laughs> no no do, pressure, do mate. Really <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be kind of cool. Brilliant. Phil, it's been amazing, mate. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Having me on. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening or watching Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. If you're watching, hit subscribe there as well. I'd also love to get a review. Reviews make a big difference on other people discovering the show. So please do leave a review wherever you get your podcast. If you want to contact me, you can do. I'm over on X at Uncensored CMO or on LinkedIn where I'm under my own name, John Evans. Thanks for listening and watching. I'll see you next time.